Welcome to Design Bubble, your all-inclusive bubble for everything design. My name is Samaya Abdullah. I'm one of your hosts for today. Joining me is my co-host, Linwa Nguyen. In this episode, we chat with Norm Cox and Kasini Nazir about design education, the history of design, and what the future holds as the path to becoming a designer evolves. And now I'll pass it off to our guests to introduce themselves. All right, well, I'll go first. My name is Norm Cox and I'm a professor at UTD. I teach design histories and design two, which is an introduction to innovation and design thinking. Hi there, I'm Kasini Nazir. I like to say that I'm a designer of conversations, curricula, and interfaces. I'm an assistant professor at University of North Texas, where I teach classes in interaction design, and my research interest is in curiosity. Without further ado, let's pop right in. So recently I went to a UX club event at UT Dallas to review some student portfolios. And I was really surprised to see that out of like the five students I did a review with only one came from a design background. So there appears to be a trend of people from non-design backgrounds who want to break into UX more. And I was curious, as educators, how have y'all adapted to this change in student demographics to ensure students' success in design? Gassini, you want to take that first? Uh, oh, man, you, you pulled what I was going to do. <laughs> I was going to say, I'll let my illustrious colleagues start that one. Well, I'll start it. Uh, sure, yeah. All right, well... I've always felt like design was more of a mindset in addition to a skill set. And at UTD, I don't expect my students to come in there with any kind of design background. They come from different schools, different perspectives. And so I have a tendency to teach them about critical thinking and how to tackle a problem rather than how to produce something visually or a UI, for example. And just because they don't have a design background doesn't mean they can't be good design thinkers and problem solvers because problems aren't presented to us that have a design solution necessarily or a visual solution. I don't presume that students have design in their background. My job, I think, is to teach them how to think and how to be aware of design so they can become better problem solvers. Damn, I wish I had gone first now because you, you stole all the, all the juicy bits. <laughs> I'll just add to that. When I started in design, design always had people from other fields coming in, particularly interface design or UX in, in sort of the early days. And I think it's really important for students who are specifically in design to learn something orthogonal, something 90 degrees from design. And I think for me, that's really history and perhaps psychology, right? Something in sort of the humanities, primarily since we deal with people and designers are really good in process. I think, you know, what Norm was saying about mindset shapes that process and components, but they have to be able to reach back and say, hmm, when has this stuff happened before? What can we learn from there in order to maybe do better in the future? It's really interesting. You're touching on how maybe in the beginning, like early parts of design come becoming a career, people didn't come from design backgrounds. And then 
relatively recently, there was a lot of people like Lenoir and I who are going to design school. And now we're seeing more people that are going for that career switch again, like learning about UX and learning about design because it's becoming a lot more visible. And I actually have a question for you two around that. In the past couple of years, I've definitely seen a big increase in UX being talked about on social media. You go on Instagram, TikTok, they have companies offering certifications. It's a cool thing because people, you know, are thinking about how can they use their existing skill set from their existing job to become a designer. But at the same time, it's also kind of marketed on social media as a quick way to get like a high paying job that you maybe already know how to do. It's becoming very visible. So the question is, how do you feel about the increasing visibility and desirability of UX as a career option? I think the way that you put it, I forget the specific words, but... It made me think of get rich quick, <laughs> were the first thoughts that come to mind. And you mentioned certificates and kind of in contrast to design programs. And I think every degree has sort of an arc of usefulness. I tell my students that your undergraduate degree should really give you an arc of three to five years. Like it should be useful three to five years out. A master's degree should give you a little bit longer of an arc, maybe five to seven years out. And I think certs really help you to get in the door. But going back to what Norm said earlier about mindsets, the deeper things that are not necessarily skills-based, but more concept and mindset-based, it's still possible for people to learn that. But those might be some of the things that get sort of missed out when you're doing the certs because they focus on the deliverables and the artifacts. And in many cases, the challenges are around, you know, how do we make sure that the templates that we use have all of the right things? And, you know, many of the times in the work that I do, I'll adjust the template or I'll throw it away <laughs> because it doesn't quite fit the use. And so I think it's very good to help people to get in, but I think it's a start, not a sort of an end. Yeah, I'll jump in on that too. Being one of the industry's early practitioners of UX, I can really appreciate its growth and the awareness of the need for people who understand other people and humans and the human aspect of design. And I think the expanded growth is going to improve the quality of life for all of us because people are becoming aware that experiences are emotional they're motivational, they're aspirational, they're all around us. Experiences are far beyond just what we consider app design. Experiences are in our environment, they're in products, they're in relationships, they're in every aspect of life. And I think we have to expand the visibility or the understanding of what UX is, that it's not only associated with the digital world and app design. It's about everything in our, in our life. To expand on uh, Cassini's point, UX is not the end-all, be-all solution. UX is sort of a bucket for lots of different disciplines from hard sciences, anthropology, sociology, psychology, computer science, human factors, uh, anthropometrics. It's a big bucket. And I think it's going to be incumbent on us to make sure that people understand that UX is not a single practice, that it's a collection of practices that create desirable experiences. I think kind of touched on how 
like it's a beautiful thing that more people are learning about the value of experiences and why we should improve them and people coming from diverse backgrounds as well starting to learn about this field and getting into it but making sure maybe it's designers practitioners to make sure that knowledge is deep and not just about making pretty pixels but making sure that people understand what it's all about one thing i want to follow up on Cassini, you mentioned three to five years-ish for the usefulness of a degree, a bachelor's degree. So follow-up to that is how can we grow our design knowledge outside of academia? Many of us don't go back to school after undergrad. So how do we keep learning? I think that's a question with many, many answers. I know for me, it helps just to read broadly and in different areas not necessarily in design specifically, but just things that help you understand the world or humans. It can be any area of interest related to something you're curious about. Trying to get to know people in ways that, you know, goes deeper than just the surface. If we're really designing experiences, we've got to rely on our own experiences and leverage those. The third thing that comes to mind kind of combines both of those is traveling. It can be cost prohibitive for many, but you know, just being in a space where people drive on the other side of the road and you've got to really pay attention to when you're <laughs> which way you're looking, it forces you to rethink your own ways of doing things. And I think travel's really, really good for sort of shaking our paradigms. I'll chip in there as well. You mentioned two things, Cassini. One was curiosity and one was getting to understand other people, what we commonly call empathy. Both of those, for me, are extremely important to see your world through someone else's eyes. I'm sort of a lifelong learner. I'm curious about so many things. I want to know about stuff. I want to hear people's stories. I want to see and understand how people view the world. I don't know that you can always go back to school and get that. I think it's an acquired skill. It's an acquired taste. I had a colleague one time that used to say, I want to be a professional observer. And it was his way of watching the world and paying attention to details and seeing patterns that others might not see or seeing details that others might not see. In one of my classes, we talk about your comfort zone. We tend to get into comfort zones where we know what we know and we continue to do that. And sometimes you have to get out of those comfort zones, do things that you're afraid of or apprehensive about. And that's where discovery lies. So I think, you know, if you don't have the luxury of going back to school, go do something adventurous. You know, step out of your comfort zones and try something else. This is a question for both of y'all now. You were talking about how UX expands beyond just like the pretty screens or as like Samaya put it, like just creating pixels and stuff. I'm curious because there's always some sort of conversation around like what makes a designer then? Because UX seems to encompass so many different like backgrounds, diverse perspectives, but then like not everybody's a designer, but I can't really word it. So do y'all have a definition then of like what makes somebody a designer and somebody who's like not quite a designer, but they could be in the future? So I have in one of my classes, I have a slide that says design is to design the design of a design. And it's a very expanded way of looking at how we describe and define 
what design is and who designers are. In part of my history class, I go back and I say, who was the first designer? Looking for qualities and insights into that. And when I ask my class, they go back to, well, Da Vinci or Gutenberg or some of those folks. And we keep going back and we eventually come to the point of, well, was it an intelligent designer that created the world on purpose? Could it be birds who create nests to attract a mate? Design is an inherent quality, I think, in all of us. I think it's in our DNA. Anytime we do something or create something on purpose for a desired result, we are a designer. We may not have the skill sets or the talent or the tools, but it doesn't make us any less a designer than anyone else. I agree with that. I think maybe one way to say it is that everyone designs, but not everyone works as a designer. It's a profession. And I go back in my classes and ask the question, when did design begin as a human activity? And students will, you know, try to impress and say Xerox Park or Bauhaus or something that seems a long time ago for them. And we'll investigate the earliest relics that we have of humans as sort of building tools is in Tanzania. I think it's Old Dupai Gorge. And there they made tools. And it's really just about rendering something that is raw materials around us into useful things for our sort of daily living. And I think everybody does that, right? When you cook a meal, you're sort of rendering something from the world around you into useful artifacts. And it's just a different form of design. And I think, Norm, I don't want to speak for you, but I think we both embrace like a very broad sweeping sort of definition of what design is. Yeah, I think so. In my history class, we go back to the cave painters when they first started expressing themselves. That spark when we went from concrete thinkers to abstract thinkers. When a charcoal mark on the wall ceased to be a charcoal mark and it became the horn of a bull. The ability to abstract things and then the ability to communicate the thoughts of the mind through these marks on walls. There was a purpose to that. There was a designed element to it. There was an artistic expression. There was a purpose to convey the world around them, to give instructions to the future inhabitants of the cave. And I think, you know, anytime we do things that has an express purpose to convey knowledge, to share a message, to evoke an emotion, it's very much a design activity. Some people are writers. They create and design books to evoke emotions and tell stories. That's different than a designer who creates beautiful logos or posters, but it's no less of a design activity. I love that y'all brought up design history because that's what our next section is about. So this is a brand new section of the podcast that we haven't done with anybody else before, but we named it a burst your bubble session. It's supposed to be kind of like a rapid fire question, answer, response thing. I would love to go talk about the past 50 years and we'll start with the 80s and just describing what design was like within the 80s and then we'll go 90s and keep going forward. But we'll start with the 80s. Flashy. 
I'm going to try these with just one word. Ooh, okay. <laughs> I would say invention and trial and error, crude, minimal by necessity. Ooh, I like that one. 90s. Techie. In your face. <laughs> Was that a comment to me, Norm? <laughs> No, it's the use of, it, it's the early Microsoft days with bright colors and garish in your face where the interface was the product. Makes sense. And now thousands, two thousands, however you want to label that. Bleh. <laughs> Inflated jelly beans. <laughs> and then 2010s. Overly simplified. Deflated flat Stanley phase. <laughs> I thought you were going to say deflated jelly beans. I was ready for it. <laughs> All right. And then 2020s. Anxious. This is my uh, Where's Waldo phase where <laughs> interfaces started to disappear and it's minimalism by choice. That makes sense. Well, thank y'all for playing along with a random Burst Your Bubble session. I'll hand it off to Samea for the last question of this podcast. To wrap us up for today, we talked a lot about like the evolution of design and where things have been and where things are going. But as educators, since design and technology are always changing, how do you make sure that the lessons you teach are applicable and they stay applicable and they serve students beyond using a specific tool or a specific software. I've been struggling with this. I taught a sophomore level class, so their second year in, in the university. And my experience with teaching students at that level is that they really want to learn, they want to learn deep skills and have like a portfolio of work. And so they'd rather us teach them just to put a contrast here, they'd rather us teach them Photoshop and not the histogram. Mm. In other words, show me how to do this thing in Photoshop. Don't show me the concept of the histogram that could be used in anywhere. And I think for them, it's really about having something that's tangible at that moment. But the real challenge is, is it durable over time, that skill set of Photoshop or whatever, right? Fill in the blank there. There's a way to teach that that says, you know, we're going to see how Photoshop handles the histogram, which allows you to do this. And, you know, you can open up, if you're a Mac user, the preview app. It'll take less time to open than Photoshop. And you also have a histogram. And sort of helping them to understand that. I taught a prototyping class and we took a tour through various different prototyping tools and students had to explore what are the strengths and weaknesses of these tools so that they could really come to an understanding of when should I use these things? Mm. We did a brief venture through some AI tools. There's something that is really hard to teach and that's just students taking their own initiative and playing around with the tools and new things that come and sort of seeing what they can do because that's something that's really hard to teach inside of a classroom. But if you can do that, Going back to what Norm said about sort of lifelong learning or a phrase that I've learned from a colleague at UNT, life-wide <laughs> learning, which is sort of a different concept, but very much related, it's you won't atrophy, right? Because 
You mentioned going through those years. Not so long ago, we were talking about InVision. I don't know anybody who uses InVision today. Forgive me, listeners, if you use InVision. Uh, but I don't know anyone who really uses that. Figma is the big thing. And, you know, 10 years from now, we'll probably be saying, why did we even bother with Figma? Well, my answer is fairly simple. I don't teach tools at all. Tools come and go. They come into vogue and then they go out and then they get replaced by something else. Same with trends in methods and ways of discovery. And what I've found over my years is that there is no magic bullet. There's no perfect process or method. There are only ways of thinking about things. In one of my classes, the first couple of weeks, I teach about how to think outside the box. And then I throw it around and say, okay, now we have to stay within the box because that's where innovation happens. I don't teach tools. I teach thinking and I teach the ability to discover for yourself. I can't even use all of the features of Photoshop. In fact, very few of them. And every time I get used to something, there's a new one that comes along. So keeping up with tools is sort of a fool's errand. What I would rather keep up with is the ability to think and discover for yourself. You know, dive into something that you don't know about. Take some classes in areas that's not part of your major. Expand your horizons. You know, becoming a learner, as Cassini just said, or a lifelong learner, is going to be much more valuable than learning a specific tool. That makes you a one-trick pony. And we don't want one-trick ponies. We want learners and discoverers and insightful people and uh, those that can think for themselves and figure out ways to find solutions to problems without using a template or a pattern that may not be applicable for that particular problem. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and got a chance to learn about how UX education is changing and get Norman Cassini's take on design over the past 50 years. Join us next time where we'll be chatting with Mike Courtney and Jonathan Safian about the increasing popularity in AI and how it affects the world of UX. If you'd like to stay up to date with us, follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Design Bubble Podcast. Thanks for popping in.